So, yes, indeed, we are, I am doing a survey of um, different paths to liberation. And uh, I don't want to come out in favor or against any one of them, so please just use this as, as sort of a, at best an introduction and then explore them all and see which ones resonate. Um, I don't, uh, at times, uh, uh, I might give some slants or positive and negatives about each path, and uh, uh, sometimes I forget to do that, but I will do that, I think, tonight. Um, when I was a young kid, in just as when I got to be a teenager, it was the 1970s. Uh, <laughs> and uh, my dad, who was a Buddhist, gave me, uh, in an attempt to ward off my adventures in pot and alcoholism, uh, gave me a copy of Philip Kaplow's Three Pillars of Zen, uh, a book which I read from cover to cover and didn't understand a word of. And I struggled with that and many other Zen texts, and then when I went to college uh, in the 80s, I was studying uh, and writing papers when everybody else was struggling with Derrida and Foucault. I was struggling with them too, but I was also struggling with the very obscure Tibetan texts. And then, finally in the 90s, I, I stumbled upon the Theravada, and I don't want to say that the Theravada is at all better or worse than uh, Zen or Tibetan, but I immediately gravitated towards it because there are some very clear paths laid out to practice. They're sort of like the ABCs of spiritual practice, and and there are talks where the Buddha pretty much just lays it out how to get from wherever we are, neurotic New Yorkers, all the way to a state where um, we are profoundly on the path to ending needless stress and suffering in our lives. There are many ways. Um, tonight I'm going to be talking about one of the three tools for bhavana, mental development. Um, it's sama vayama. It means right effort. It's a very right effort. It's kind of a weird uh, translation for it, but... Um, in essence, the three, I'm going to talk for a moment about the other two tools, and that will help distinguish this one. There's the tool of concentration, where, and I'll be talking about that as a path to liberation, either next week or the week following. And concentration is when we select an object, it could be the breath, body sensations, the sound of a bowl, uh, any present time sensation we decide uh, we are going to keep our awareness on that sensation. And each time a thought comes along, or a emotion, or a mood, or another sensation, we bring awareness back again and again and again. And this ability to focus uh, and uh, uh, attention, what the Buddha both called samadhi and kagata, 
it is a very profound tool to stilling the mind. When the mind jumps around from one thing to another, it's not very peaceful. So the ability to simply focus the mind is a very powerful tool. Another tool that the Buddha used and is an extremely important tool to enlightenment is the practice of uh, mindfulness sati, which is also in America known quite frequently as insight. It's the ability to, no matter what is going on in life, bring awareness to the internal states that are occurring. Uh, at any given moment, we have body sensations. We have what's known as gut feelings, uh, stresses and eases. The sort of gut feelings that you have about every situation in your life. There are moods, emotional states, energy states. The mind can be tired or alert. So even when I'm talking to you right now, I can bring awareness as well into the body, and I can feel that my breath is actually quite comfortable right now. I can feel that my stomach is soft, but I can work on relaxing my shoulders. So I'm, I'm pretty relaxed. Um, if, though, suppose we were having a difficult conversation, suppose I ran into somebody in the street that I didn't particularly want to see, and um, now... Insight gives me a powerful tool in and of itself just to work with life in that I can bring awareness inwards and I can notice that just seeing this person has tightened my stomach, tightened my shoulders, my jaw is beginning to get clenched, my breath is getting cut off. So physically I'm going into an armored state. The ability to know what's going on uh, beneath the external world that I'm aware of is an extremely powerful tool to develop happiness, tranquility, uh, serenity, and also insight into the way that I create suffering in my life. On top of that, insight creates an incredibly powerful tool to view the impermanence of experience, the radical changing and flux of everything. Generally, the way in life we cause a lot of suffering for ourselves is mistaking very impermanent situations as lasting. So insight is a very, very powerful tool. Uh, highly recommended. Um, now tonight's tool is the tool of changing unskillful thought processes and mind states from the obsessive, worrying, uh, harm-producing, stress-inducing kinds of thoughts and uh, mental content that create suffering. The ability to know when we are in an unskillful state of mind and to replace whatever state we're in with a state that creates peace or wisdom or ease. So this is a very active dynamic State, whereas the foundations of insight are based on uh, qualities of sampujana, the ability to observe without needing to change, uh, without needing to take things personally. Uh, samavayama, or right effort, is the ability to actually do the exact opposite in a way. It's the ability to swap out 
our, exper- our mental experience, our thoughts, and change them for other thoughts. So this is a complementary tool. It's a very important tool, and the Buddha taught all three throughout the course of his 40 years of teaching. This ability to know when we're in unskillful thoughts uh, and being able to change them for thoughts that are far more skillful is at the heart of a lot of tools that the Buddha taught. Uh, The very last tool he taught in his life prolifically was uh, appropriate attention, Yonisa Manasikara, and that was based on this. So it's something that was very close to his practice throughout. Now, the importance of, of thoughts cannot, and intentions and mind states cannot be underestimated. Um, it's a commonplace mistake to believe that uh, our actions, the things that we do externally to <coughs> others, are the sum total of the karma that we're going to have to live with, and, that, and those are the things that create uh, happiness or suffering. But actually the Buddha said at the heart of every action, every speech act, there's an underlying intention or thought that motivated it, and that actually creates the fundamental long-term results that we'll be living with. So if my intention was to do good, but accidentally I cause harm, the karma would be much better than if I did something nice, but I'm secretly motivated by just getting ahead. So it might sound, uh, we might think it's the opposite, that if, oh, I, yeah, I, I, I did something really nice, but I did it just so that I would get noticed by that cute girl or boy or or that, uh, that person that I think is cute. Uh, uh, but actually, if I'm motivated just for personal gain, that undermines the action. Now, the reason this is, is that there are what's known as long-term repercussions for the way we use the mind. This is really the heart of karma. There is the short-term results of actions and the long-term. The short-term result of uh, if I had a crack pipe here, which would be unusual during a Dharma football. Could you imagine that? Excuse me for a moment. Oh, yes. uh, uh, There would be... I did hear a funny story about a guy who was giving a... uh, a fifth step to a sponsor in AA, and he looked up while he was doing it, and his sponsor was sipping from a glass of wine. <laughs> That's when you know your story is pretty dull, I guess. <laughs> what the fuck was I talking about? <laughs> All right, so the actions, the, the thoughts are the, what's important. Uh, really, they are what uh, creates the long term. Uh, mind states that you're going to live in. Uh, in I'm going to read from uh, a sutta from the Buddha, and the Buddha says in this very clearly, in this, this lesson that the mind goes in the long term 
in directions set by the thoughts that we give attention to in our lives. I want to focus on that for a moment. If you have a thought that pops into your head, you know, you're going to the subway, there's somebody standing right in your way blocking the entrance, and you think, I want to kill that guy. (laughs) And then you immediately say, ah, that's a stupid thought, you know, whatever. There's no karma to that. The things that pop up in your mind are really, they can be stuff that you've heard anywhere. They can be, they could be the voice of a friend that you've internalized. But the things that we focus, the thoughts that we focus on and give energy to and, and attention to, uh, that's what the Buddha said, really what causes the karma. Not the thought that pops up, but the giving of intention, attention. Uh, focusing on the thought. And the, all the, the talks on karma, if that's where the meat of the matter is, um, well, I don't need meat, that's where the, the <coughs> saitan of the matter, what? The heart of the matter. The heart of the matter. The heart of the matter. <laughs> it's, it's there. So, uh, so, um, <coughs> If you have, as I said, if you have that unskillful thought, don't worry about it, but just the ability to be able to drop it, see that it's unskillful, and bring your attention to another thought that is skillful is really very much at the heart of this practice. Now, now, rather than requiring us to memorize this long list of every kind of unskillful, um, of every unskillful thought there is, the Buddha tended to just break it down in types, types of thoughts. So if you get to know the form of unskillful thoughts that are worth of avoiding, that will do the trick. You don't have to sit around and analyze it to death, which we tend to do with our thoughts and ideas. Saying, oh, yeah, you know, that neighbor downstairs is an asshole. <laughs> Should I, would it be a good idea, because I play music so late, if I uh, flooded my bathroom so that it, <laughs> it's only fair, it's probably not that skillful, but, you know, then there's this little voice going, but no, 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 it's a good idea, I like this idea, and there's like, the, no, but then I'd have to, so, yeah, we can justify even the most crappy acts. Or B, when we have a, generally our good intentions, they just pop up once. A little good idea. <laughs> and then, then the, the why should I voice comes up. Everybody, nobody else does something nice like that. Why the fuck should I? That's a lot. That's a that's a lot of work. <laughs> Volunteering at the community garden or whatever the fuck. Who does that shit? It's a lot. So, rather than trying to debate it all, simply knowing what types of thoughts get us in trouble uh, saves a lot of effort. So, I'm going to, I've based this list on, um, uh, the, the Buddha has a lot of lists of bad types of <laughs> thoughts and inclinations, the Anusayas, the Upadanas, the Savas, the Kailasas. So, I sort of summarized it for you. I'm going to give you five. Any more than five you won't remember. I gotta give you your money's worth. Any more less than five, you're gonna say, but Josh, I came all the way here to 
Houston, and Valerie. And he only gave me three thoughts to avoid. That's, I just feel gypped. <laughs> you probably, in that voice, you wouldn't say it at all. You might not even be thinking that. But uh, So, the first is any kind of thought that lets you know that there's something missing from your life that you need to be happy forever after. And if you just get that diploma, that girlfriend, boyfriend, that partner, that uh, person, that place, that thing, that dog, that cat, that if you only had that um, uh, that book, that iPad, that, that car, if you only lived somewhere else, if you only lived in California where it's always warm and there's never this snow nonsense, it's my own personal voice. Um, so um, anything that tells you that you're Happiness is a matter of getting something, accumulating something. That is craving. Uh, Kamatana, uh, Tama Asava, uh, Kamasava, sorry, Kamasava. Craving, wanting. Give me that thing. Then there's the uh, exact opposite. Any obsessive or any thought that basically tells you that if you could only get rid of that person, that thing, that if only I didn't have this roommate, this co-worker, that boss, if only I didn't have to work on this stupid computer, this project, this, if only I didn't have this thing in my life, then I'd be happy forever after. Um, the twin fallacies of you need to get something or get rid of something to be happy is the delusion that there you do, you do not have right here and right now all that you need to be happy, that there's something flawed, missing, or wrong about you. There is nothing flawed, missing, wrong about you. You have everything you need once you have a human brain to find lasting happiness. Uh, if you don't believe me, look up the work of Martin Seligman and all of the... Uh, research into baseline happiness, they found that uh, people who win the lottery within four or five months go right back to the moods and happiness levels that they were in before they won the, ha the lottery. That getting all the money you want, and also the flip side of that, they found that people who had debilitating, paralyzing accidents very quickly returned back to the same level of happiness as well. That, frankly, the thing that creates happiness, they determined, is the way we use our mind, not how much things we accumulate in the world. So those are two types of thoughts to note, and if you spot them, uh, replace them, and I'll tell you what to replace them with in a moment, but uh, the third type of thought is the there's something wrong with you. You're different, you're special, you're unique. Nobody else has a mind like yours, you're completely different. Uh, and I'm not saying that you're not special, because you are special to me. <laughs> you're each a unique snowflake in my heart. <laughs> but, but we all work from the same emotional palette. We each, as uh, uh, Paul Ekman determined, there's only... Uh, I think he finally settled on nine uh, emotions uh, that are transcultural, transhistorical. Everybody's got the same ones. Um, 
we have, of course, different thoughts and different uh, details of our lives, but uh, if we get into the belief that we cannot understand, that nobody else can understand us, we're up, we're into delusion land. I'll give you a wonderful example. Um, there's a wonderful uh, Buddhist uh, sober guy named Earl H., who was famously, um, after uh, he got, he beat incredible odds uh, of a terminal cancer when he was very young, and his parents, to celebrate um, this, uh, decided to take him and his sister on a plane trip to Mexico to celebrate that he had beaten cancer. And the plane crashed, and every other member of his family died. And uh, he was left with broken bones in his entire body. And the plane crashed in Mexico. And unfortunately, bandits came before um, the police came and robbed the bodies of his family while he was lying there. And then finally, the uh, police came and they thought he was dead. So they threw him in the back of a truck with the bodies of his family. Finally, he was discovered that he was still breathing. And so, uh, after, after a year in the hospital mending, he went on a, what we could call a drug binge. <laughs> <laughs> Who knew? <laughs> so, uh, after trying to basically kill himself and not succeeding, he got sober, and over the years of sobriety, he um, uh, became a famous, famous circuit speaker. In fact, the actor Robert Downey Jr. gives him early credit as the one who got him sober. He's Robert Downey Jr.'s sponsor. He's not anonymous, so I'm not breaking anyone's anonymity here. It's been written up in magazines. Anyway, so Earl H., uh, I know the story because I met him, and uh, he was uh, talking at a, uh, one of the places where he gives talks in California, and he was telling his story, and the, out of the crowd burst this woman who was sobbing and came running up to him and held him and hugged him and started weeping, and he was very touched, and after she regained her composure, she explained that she had been in a plane crash, lost all of her family, and had been in a hospital for a year, and she never thought that she would ever meet anyone else who had the exact same story. So unless your story is more unusual than that... There is somebody out there who will understand. That's a long way to go to make a point, but if even one of you, if even one of you gets it from that, then my work here is done. So, the fourth type of thought to avoid, we've already covered getting something that will solve everything, getting rid of something that will solve anything, believing that I'm terminally unique and different from everyone else, nobody can understand. The fourth type is repetitive, intrusive thoughts that don't stop coming back into your mind. 
This is the uh, thought that comes up at three in the morning, the, uh, the thought that will not let you go, uh, the obsessive repetitive thought. Now, the question comes up here, suppose, Josh, you say, Josh, you say, and I say, well, that's nice, you're calling me by my first name. <laughs> you say, Josh, suppose this obsessive thought I have is telling me to do something good, like go to the gym or meditate. You're a guy who's in favor of meditation, so what would be wrong with that obsessive thought? And I would say back to you, I'd rather you not meditate than train yourself to navigate through life by listening to obsessive, repetitive thoughts. It's better that you develop a way to motivate and talk to yourself that doesn't involve haranguing yourself over and over again. Even if it miss, means missing a couple of gym or not paying the bills for a day or not meditating for a day, if the only way we have to motivate and keep ourselves in line and do the right thing, etc. in life, is by repeating over and over and over again obsessively an idea until we beat ourselves up into it, it's not a good deal. Because karmically, in the long term, you will inherit a mind that will never shut up. Believe me, I've met <laughs> these people. You can tell because they talk the way they think. And when they want you to do something, they can't say it once, or five times, or ten times. It's the same way they think to themselves. They just repeat over and over and over and over and over again. So the goal is, even if it's a terrific idea, like, you know, I really should call my mother, or I really should check in with a friend, if the idea that's pushing it forward is a haranguing, repetitive, beating yourself up into submission voice, don't do it. Develop a voice that's skillful, that will guide you. You'll be happy in the long term that you develop this. And finally, the fifth kind of thought is the one that predicts the future, namely a dark future. <laughs> if I don't do this, if I get this wrong, if I make the wrong decision, if I don't choose correctly, if I don't do this, if I don't get this job, if I don't, then I will meet a horrible death, be alone, wind up on the streets, mugged, <laughs> and my life will have been meaningless. You cannot predict the future. In fact, the Buddha called speculation the purest, quickest, most efficient way towards madness. One of my favorite talks of his. So, those are the five, um, and I'm going to say that now you might say, okay, well that's, maybe you wouldn't say this, but that's a lot of my thinking right there. <laughs> <laughs> Don't take that personally, that, was, that is often mine as well, I'm not, uh, I'm, I'm not making this shit up. <laughs> I don't talk from anything I don't have first-hand knowledge of. And so um, the key is when you're in that kind of unskillful thinking, uh, the simple truth is do the exact opposite. So if you're in a, a mind pattern that's predicting the future, just focus on right now. Right now, what is the most skillful thing that I can do to, to 
develop, uh, what is the next right thing? I do not know how the future is going to turn out. I cannot guess it. I have been wrong in the past. So right now, if my intentions are good, I'm going to follow through with this action. I'm not going to think it through to death, trying to figure out what's the perfect move in my life, rather to move to San Diego or to San Francisco. I'm just going to go with the decision that has the kindest voice right now. If we have a tendency to uh, listen to obsessive, repetitive thoughts, start focusing on the thoughts that just come up once. And so long as you know that the intention is not harmful, go with it. As the Buddha taught his son Rahula in the Rahula Sutta, um, he said, if you feel that an intention is good, try it out. Life is a trial and error process. It's not a figuring it out all in advance process. If you see that something, as the Buddha said in that sutta, is causing suffering, stop doing it. But we don't try to figure everything out. The best policy is if we don't know and we're too scared to act, just ask for a spiritual friend, Kalyanamita, to give input. But trying to figure out or solve everything in life, which is the thing that tends to get us into the greatest trouble, the greatest obsession, the greatest amount of um, uh, papancha, the Buddha called it, obsessive thinking, is not the solution. If we find ourselves in thoughts that are telling us that there's something we need, there's something wrong, then of course we need to focus on thoughts of gratitude. Gratitude for our every skillful thing that we've done that we can remember. Gratitude for our virtue. Gratitude for the spiritual practice that we have in our lives just from being here. Gratitude for health. Gratitude for um, the friends that we have who have spared time to listen when we've been suffering. And gratitude for the times we've listened to friends when they've been suffering. Gratitude for the real and uh, emotionally tolerant connections that we have in our lives. The strongest uh, antidote, antidote to craving is gratitude. The strongest antidote to aversion is forgiveness. Remembering that uh, if somebody's acting really unskillfully, we don't need to get rid of them or mentally demolish them we can simply know that, uh, one, that there's no need to add any aversion because everybody lives in the results of their actions. There's nothing I need to do to uh, get back or... Uh, there's nobody I walk around with lots of... Eh. Eh. <laughs> Only I didn't have to deal with this. I never think that because, you know, honestly, uh, really beginning to see clearly that the way we think and act creates the minds that we live in. When we are around somebody who's unskillful, eventually with any spiritual practice, we know that they are creating uh, their future. And it makes it so much easier to forgive and wish them happiness. And that gets all the obsession and all the suffering out of the mind. 
all of these tools have the benefit of quieting the mind, of really quieting the mind, of, of getting all the volume, all the repetitiveness, all the thoughts that fill us up, so that we can become clearly aware of what's really happening in our lives. Finally, it's to that end that I'd like to read you how the Buddha said that this practice of simply replacing, noting which thoughts are unskillful and replacing them with thoughts of gratitude, kindness, generosity, thoughts of appreciation of all the things that we have, appreciation for the happiness of the people around us, thoughts of appreciation for our spiritual lives, appreciation for... Um, breath, body, mind, that all of these practices, the Buddha said, eventually led to a mind that was so clear and so, in essence, um, um, undistorting that it allowed him to achieve liberation. I'm going to read you his exact narrative. I divided my thoughts into two groups, those that were unskillful, based on craving or aversion or self-centered, and those that were based on letting go or acceptance. The thoughts that were unskillful created stress, and the thoughts that were skillful released stress. The thoughts that were unskillful created stress. Knowing that the mind becomes inclined to states based on the thoughts one has pursued, in other words, the thoughts we have create our future states, by remaining attentive to peaceful, quiet thoughts, eventually a clear mind was established, which resulted in the first refined meditative state of rapture and pleasure and clear seeing. And so the mind became stiller and stiller and unified until increasingly peaceful states of concentration followed. And I became aware of the past states, the types of thoughts and actions that created misery. And so he's seeing here, without all the delusion of self, and if only I could get this, and what's going to happen in the future, all those unskillful thoughts have been stripped away. And so his mind is so quiet, he can begin to see just how much suffering was created by unskillful thinking. And then he says, ignorance was destroyed. And from this true knowledge arose the noble truths. The noble truths are those sufferings that are inevitable and those sufferings that we create for ourselves. And from this, I was released from affliction and I found my liberation. So, simply by noting the obsessive, worrying, projecting, self-centered, craving thoughts and replacing them over and over again with thoughts that created a still, quiet, peaceful mind. Liberation was achieved. Thank you for listening. Uh,